Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Jeffrey Wasserstrom, a historian of China at the University of California, Irvine, and the author of multiple books, including Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. We'll discuss the death of China's former leader, Jiang Zemin, and the future of the country's anti-lockdown protests. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. So when I contacted you to set up this interview, you said there would be developments for us to talk about. And there have indeed been developments. In the hours before we started recording this, we learned that the former Chinese leader Jiang Zemin has died. I want to get into that and what that specifically might mean for these protests. But I thought we should start by just tracing back how we got here. And if you would take us through what as the key developments leading up to the current moment? Yeah, it's a great question. So first of all, there, there are protests in China continually. What we haven't seen until this last weekend, what we hadn't seen in a couple of decades was simultaneous protests in different places all at once based on criticism of a government policy. We had seen local protests associated with government policies. We had also seen scattered protests simultaneously that were against a foreign power, like anti-Japanese protests or in 1999, anti-NATO protests. But we hadn't seen the combination of these uh, multiple-sided protests. So these weren't the biggest protests since Tiananmen, which has sometimes been said, but they were the first of this particular sort since Tiananmen. There had been massive protests by workers in a particular locale. There were the protests in Hong Kong in a single locale that were much bigger. But this was striking because of that. 
Going backwards, what I think we've seen, or one way to think about these protests specifically, is they're similar to a series of protests that have been that were online only, that were triggered by a death that was somehow related to COVID or the measures taken related to COVID. So first of all, we had an outpouring of anger online when an early whistleblower who had drawn attention to COVID early on, and the idea was that his effort to spread the word about it was suppressed and then he died tragically. So there was an outpouring of grief related to him, pattern of mourning being connected to protest. So that was in 2020. Then to a certain extent, there was a fair degree, a sense that the Chinese Communist Party had moved from trying to cover up COVID to handling it quite effectively, even if there were lockdowns that people were frustrated by because they felt they were too severe. There was an overall feeling that the Chinese Communist Party probably had the right idea to take a very strong stance toward it. And there were very botched efforts to deal with COVID in other parts of the world. So there was there was a good deal of popularity for the what's now been called zero COVID. There was also a sense that China was doing something in step with some other parts of the world that were also handling, that were keeping death tolls down. And so you could point to places like New Zealand and Australia and in different ways and Taiwan that also were using a very muscular response to COVID and were keeping, keeping death rates down. But then going into 2021 and even more so into 2022, there started to be more fraying of this kind of assumption that the Communist Party had the right idea. And there was an idea that the lockdowns were going on too long and were too arbitrary. There was a lot of frustration. And there were some new outbursts online, not street actions, but online protests, quite dramatically people expressing anger. The Shanghai lockdown inspired a lot of that in last April. But also there was a bus crash in which people were killed being taken to a quarantining facility. And that just led in, this was on September 18th, that led to a lot of expressions of outrage online that a policy that was all about protecting people and limiting deaths was actually causing deaths. So there was an eruption there. And that, I think, there were then also some other, some other protests, including at a factory where people felt they were being trapped inside a COVID zone rather than being protected from it. Those protests during the days leading up to what happened last weekend, and then last weekend's protests were triggered by a fire in Xinjiang that people couldn't escape from because they were literally locked in. And so that led to this kind of protest. So the protests were presaged by things online that could give us a sense of widely shared outrage. But what was new was that people were not just expressing their anger online, but were also doing it on the streets. Jeff, can you talk a little bit about the incident that we saw on the Setong Bridge in Beijing just ahead of the Communist Party's Congress in October and how we're seeing some aspects of that protest play into these current demonstrations? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for bringing it up. I think what's called sometimes the bridge man or banner man protest. It's an amazing thing because in the lead up to the party Congress, the lead up to big events, there's tightening of controls that already seem tight in Beijing in particular. Surveillance is ramped up. And so it really was the last place in some ways that people really expected to see something, an act of protest. 
And it was a very daring event with a man who put up two, two banners, which included some easily memorizable statements about what we don't want and what we do want. We don't want tests. We want freedom. A variety of things that are starting to show up again on the streets. But I think it's just really crucial to say that this was a surprising event, an incredibly surprising event that people didn't see coming. In the same way that bursts of protests were something that people didn't see coming, that analysts can say, oh, yes, if we look back in time, we can see the things that led up to it. But we shouldn't forget how just that there was a shock to it. There was also a shock to the party Congress itself, which was something that what we expected to happen was that Xi Jinping would stay on for another term. We expected to see a standing committee, the most important group of leaders, mostly being people who were closely tied to Xi Jinping. We did not expect to see every member of the standing committee to be, to be linked to Xi Jinping. And we also didn't really expect, well, or at least I think it's relevant to keep in mind that one of the people promoted to a position of authority in this latest move was the Shanghai official who was most associated with the Shanghai lockdown, which was very unpopular in Shanghai and would have been seen as something that if the government was listening to online expressions of outrage, that official might have been chastised or at least held back from promotion, but instead was promoted. And I think it's hard to say why Shanghai was as much of a hub of outrage last weekend, but I think it's logical to assume that was one factor in it. And that may also help to explain why in Shanghai, as in some places, but not in all places, there was a combining of specific discontent about the zero COVID policy and how it was being carried out and expressions of sympathy with the people who died in the fire with criticism of the party leadership. In that Bridgeman or Bannerman protest, we saw the physical protest be shut down very quickly and then references to it be censored online. But is it surprising to you, or perhaps we shouldn't be surprised, that actually the words and the slogans that he used clearly were very widely shared because they're now manifesting in, in real life in these protests? So people in China are incredibly resourceful about getting around censorship. As So there's a continual cat and mouse game between censors and people trying to get around censorship. And so there was a way in which there was very quickly the thing spread before they were censored. But also, I think it's really important to think about the fact that, and I don't have to tell you this because you've written a book, a very good book that moves between China, Russia, and North Korea. But the situation in China isn't like North Korea in the sense of a kind of the degree to which China is sealed off. There are, there are ways in which information, ideas, and things flow inside and outside of China. So on campuses in different parts of the world, there were some, some pieces of paper put up that included the statements that had been shown and then disappeared from Beijing and they were kept alive in other places. And, and that's also part of what is the story of protest in the current moment in many parts of the world. There's a way in which both the diaspora or people who travel abroad can say things outside of China that can't be said inside of China, and things can circulate back and forth. It used to be that Hong Kong was a key place where information banned on the mainland would be sent back in. And in, in, uh, Tiananmen. In 1989, one of the things that happened when 
news about protests or and about the massacre was being squashed within China. There were people in Hong Kong, but also in the West who sent faxes into mainland with information or copies of newspaper articles that had been published outside of China that couldn't be distributed via paper, couldn't be, couldn't, you couldn't mail an article in, but you could fax it in. And it, there's always a way in which people are trying to sort of stay ahead of the latest form of censorship and information control. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Armando Iannucci. And I'm Anusha Kellyan. And we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it. We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power, alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamond Adukisi Deborah, and Catherine Haddon. You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. You have studied extensively and written a terrific book about the protest movement in Hong Kong. 
Does it strike you that there are elements in these protests that are borrowing imagery or tactics from that protest? I'm thinking particularly of, of the use of these blank sheets of papers that were, blank sheets of paper that we're seeing. So that's a clear example. So the blank sheet of paper, I love this to talk about it because it's it's something that was used in Hong Kong as a way to say in 2020 when the national security law had been brought in as saying, look, this law, it's so unclear what we say that could be viewed as sedition that all we're going to do is put up a piece of blank paper. Are you really going to be foolish enough to punish us for that? And that's something that then's done on the mainland. And now it's being done in Hong Kong as a sympathy protest for the mainland. And it's got a kind of different register. It's now we really are in some ways as constrained as on the mainland. So it actually has a different value as it moves between places. And that's one of the reasons why protest is so fascinating to, to think about and things do travel. Another place where there are blank paper protests were in Russia recently against the war. But there's actually a Russian route to the blank paper. One, one way of thinking about the blank paper is that it's a kind of variation on an old Soviet joke, which is somebody distributes a pamphlet that has nothing written on it. And the joke is that, well, everybody knows what I would have said if I could have said it, some version of this. So you have the way that things travel from different places and are localized and take on new meanings as they travel. So the blank sheet of paper even if it's globally circulating, it has similar, it has localized meanings. So one of the things now on the internet, an image that's gaining popularity, a meme shows Winnie the Pooh looking at a sheet of blank, a blank sheet of paper and puzzling over what could this mean. And Winnie the Pooh is used to stand for Xi Jinping because of ideas that his physique resembled Winnie the Pooh. And that became a banned image, but has stayed as something that people think of as a playful way of mocking Xi Jinping. Jeff, how would you characterize the response that we've seen from the authorities so far? I think there's been a mix of things that were fairly expected in the sense of drawing on different parts of the repertoire of repression that is at the hands of the authorities. Though the exact mix will always be different, but there are things that were you expect to have efforts to discredit the protests by talking about them being the work of nefarious foreign forces and can check that box. That's happened. There is a likelihood that there'd be some sort of effort to show a willingness to at least make some kind of modifications to show to a policy to show that there was a listening to the people. And that did happen with some loosening in some specific ways of specific lockdowns. I'm not sure what's happened, but there probably will be punishing of some local officials saying that they had mishandled the policy rather than the policy being wrong. And that seems to have happened as well. Though, again, the big opportunity to take that route was given away in a sense, by having a major promotion for, for the Shanghai official. And there have been arrests and intimidation. I, I mentioned that last, not because it's insignificant, it's very significant, but, but simply that was very expected as well, that there'd be some of it. I think one challenge for the authorities is that this does seem to be, and this links it up in a way with the Hong Kong protest to be a fairly leaderless thing. So there isn't one of the, one of the ways that the Chinese Communist Party will go after 
movements is to go after leaders and or also try to, to batter away at organizations. But they've done so much battering of civil society that it's hard for them to figure out what are, obviously there are networks of some sort that get people into action, but it's not as, it's not as clear as it has been at some earlier times who to target with these things. But there has been a mix of bullying, some amelioration, and some distraction and discrediting. So we've seen all of those things take place. But now there's this incredible wild card thrown into it all with, with Jiang Zemin's death, which can, in some senses, fit in with the distraction strategy. It becomes something different to talk about than the protest, to talk about it in the newspapers, but it also can present a possibility for a renewed kind of protest because there is a real, a well-established tradition of using a moment of mourning to express both regret that, that somebody has died and turn that into a way of suggesting that the people who live on in power are unworthy or not as worthy as the person who's died. So it's a, it's a very complicated moment for the Chinese leadership. I know my own response to hearing the news of the death of Jiang Zemin was this couldn't have come at a worse time for the CCP leadership. Can you unpack a little bit, and I absolutely acknowledge what you say of this, this could certainly be used to flood the zone and try and shift the focus to Jiang Zemin, an official mourning rather than the protests than the grievances about the lockdown measures. But what do we know from Chinese history about how the deaths of previous senior figures have in some cases led themselves into protest movements? Well, there are a couple of really big examples that, that, that both of them are associated with Tiananmen, that in 1976, there were big protests when Zhou Enlai died and there was a way of using gathering to mourn Zhou Enlai as a way of expressing displeasure with the Gang of Four and with Mao even. So Zhou Enlai became a kind of proxy for uh, a more liberal, some side to the Chinese Communist Party. And these often involve very overly simplified views of the person who's died, which happens with deaths in general of, of friends or of co-workers or of family members, that, that there's an idea that you you often present them as more unblemished figures than they were. So Zhou Enlai was complicit in a lot of uh, moves against Chinese intellectuals, but still, there was a way in which his death was an opportunity that could be used. And then the same thing, a version of the same thing happened with what in the West is more commonly remembered as the Tiananmen protests, even though the 1976 protests were known in China as the Tiananmen, Tiananmen protests for a time as well. In 1989, when Hu Yaobang had been radically demoted for um, taking too soft a line on student protests in 1986-87, when he then died in 1989, there were that was the beginning mourning ceremonies that included statements about good people seem to die too young and bad people live on was a way to to have veiled criticisms of people who were seen as less less open to reform than Hu Yaobang and there too it was there there was some genuine fondness by some people of Hu Yaobang but there were also people who simply saw it as a way to take digs at the current leadership and the deaths of officials are, if they haven't been 
formally reviled if there's just simply who were Hu Yaobang is described sometimes as having been purged, but he was still a he was still an official. He was still somebody who there had to be mourning ceremonies for. And Jiang Zemin, though nobody's going to say he died, he died so young because he's in his 90s. But there is a way in which even if the current leadership is moving in different directions or sees itself as in some ways moving very differently than Jiang Zemin was, they need to allow mourning for him. And that opens up a space for people to talk about other things. While we're here mourning Jiang Zemin, let's also talk about X. And we saw a version of this in Hong Kong quite recently with the death of Queen Elizabeth, that there was a way in which some people turned out to mourn her probably because they had a kind of nostalgic view of the pre-1997 period of British rule. But some had absolutely no, no fondness for the colonial period, but they thought, here's a time when we're able to go onto the streets. And under the guise of mourning Queen Elizabeth, some of them began singing or playing Glory to Hong Kong, the band protest anthem, which has nothing to do with nostalgia for colonialism, but was simply taking an opportunity for collective action that was opened. Well, there is so much to watch here. This is a developing and an absolutely fascinating situation. So I hope you all will come back on, on the podcast and update us again soon. I think that's a good place to wrap this up for now. Let me say, Jeffrey Wasserstrom, thank you so much for joining us and for such a terrific conversation. And also our fabulous producer, Adrian, I'm sure we'll edit this out seamlessly so you will never know, but my internet connection has been coming and going throughout the recording. So thank you also for your extraordinary patience. Thank you. It was a great pleasure to be able to be on at this moment. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. And if you want to hear more on this, you can also listen to our special three-part podcast series, China Under Xi, available right here in the World Review podcast feed. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us. And for bonus points, please leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening. And until next time. 